Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. We have a great program ahead of you for the next 60 minutes focusing on three different topics for today on Wednesday, January 30th, 2019. First and foremost, we're going to talk about the axis of Turkey, Iran, and Qatar. But this is a topic that we sometimes get to that we say, well, Turkey's bad, Iran is bad, the uh, Qataris are causing problems in the Middle East. But one thing that we don't usually speak about is who exactly is backing this axis? And we're going to get into this analysis of the Huawei case up in Vancouver, Canada, and the uh, Chinese using their largest uh, domestic, if not international, cell phone maker to try to find ways to subvert U.S. sanctions against Iran on two accounts. First, because they want to be able to do business with the Iranians, and second, because they use the technology to spy on Americans. The second thing we're going to talk about this morning is an update from Latin America with Joseph Humeyer. He's always an exciting guest when we're able to speak about what's going on with the Brazilian election and their tilt towards a more pro-American Middle East policy coming from South America. Uh, we're also going to be looking at his recent testimony that he had in Peru and Argentina, and the latest coming out of Venezuela, which is really a humanitarian disaster waiting to happen and unfolding before our eyes, where we have two presidents, one elected by the people, the other appointed by a dictatorship or by a junta by the Venezuelan military, and how that affects Middle East policy there. And lastly, we're also going to get an update from what's going on with campus with Winfield Myers. And my hope is, is, is that we'll have a little bit of nuance of what exactly is going to be the uh, uh, menu for the academic year 2019-2020 when it comes to American Middle East Studies programs and Islamic Studies programs. But first, let's get to China. There was an event that took place two weeks ago at the Philadelphia World Affairs Council in an interview with uh, Craig Snyder, the president of the council, and Steve Bannon, the former counselor to the president. Now, the three things that Bannon was there to speak about was how China itself has seen the evolution of its place in the world from one where it realized that uh, it, it could not defeat the United States or the West writ large militarily. In a kinetic conflict between American firepower and Chinese firepower, even though the Chinese have more uh, people, they have more fodder, they have more resources, they would not be able to mobilize in a war against the United States in order to win. But what they do have is ambition to extend their economic hegemony and their social and cultural influence in the rest of Asia, which is called the One Belt, One Road policy, also known as the Great Silk Road. Now, Bannon said during this uh, uh, interview with Mr. Glazer, that we can never get sucked into the vortex of a traditional military conflict with the West, speaking as the Chinese position. So when you have the idea of there being a kinetic war that we can't win, perhaps there's an information or an economic war that we can gain an upper hand against the Americans. And when you look at this, it's the goal of China by 2025 to disrupt the Westphalian system, which has been in place in the West since the 1600s. Um, and the way that Bannon contextualized this was instead of just looking at this as a binary battle between the United States interests and the Chinese interests being a trade war between 
exports from America, like Harley-David motorcycles being tariffed by the Chinese and Chinese exports, whether it be automobiles or cell phones or, or dishwashers being taxed and tariffed by the American U.S. trade representative. He was encouraging us to look beyond the binary nature of the American-Chinese relationship to start looking at the proxy battles that are going on. Now, the shift with uh, the Obama administration's national security policy from the previous Bush and Clinton era years focusing on the Middle East towards what they called the Southeast Asian pivot was one that was meant on countering China, both economically, both militarily, also through the use of uh, information and misinformation. On the military front, we saw the first U.S. Marines base opened up in a new uh, Pacific locale with the opening of the U.S. base in Darwin, Australia. That's what, what took place in, um, I think it was 2014, 2015 that the base was open. On the economic front, you had the uh, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which uh, President Trump pulled the United States out of. And on the information front, we had the... Um, uh, U.S. information agency pumping uh, money into Vietnamese outlets, into Taiwanese outlets, uh, trying to bolster the Japanese and Korean uh, positions as related to Chinese misinformation and combating it. But when President Trump came in, he realized that even though it's probably a good idea to reposition our forces to counter China kinetically, which is this is the idea beforehand that the Chinese can be beaten militarily. It was also important to adopt an information operation strategy, meaning the way in which we communicate to the world versus the way that China communicates to the world. And more importantly, it was important to back America's allies in the Middle East, which had been disengaged from during the Obama years, and to make sure that if there was Russian intransigence, if there was a, a soft Chinese uh, 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 development of, of extending their economic prowess and their economic spheres of influence into the Middle East, that the United States would be there to match them and to say to them, this is not your area of influence. If you do try to start influencing Middle Eastern economies, Middle Eastern countries, if you start trying to extend your one belt, one road policy into a region that we have historically dominated since the 1960s, since Eisenhower and 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 um, Nasser were were together, and and since Kennedy helped build the Swan Dam, and and whatever else, I mean, the Chinese already leapfrogged over the Middle East into Africa to be able to obtain very very rare earth elements and 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 minerals to be able to help finance their boom back in Beijing. But here's where the Huawei case comes in. The CFO of Huawei, the largest Chinese cell phone manufacturer, was recently stopped at Vancouver International Airport in Canada. The United States had filed an extradition request and a uh, demand that the Canadian government stop her to be able to adjudicate the request that the U.S. State Department had filed with the Canadian government because this official, the, China, the chief financial officer for this company, the daughter of the CEO and founder of the company, someone who's very connected to the central party committee, the ruling body of the Chinese government, was accused of using Huawei, a company called Skycom, and different financial mechanisms to continue selling dual-use technology and sensitive technology to the Iranian government. 
And by doing this, they were able to bypass American sanctions that were focused on Iran. So this investigation had been going on for a few years. There were suspicions during the Obama administration that the company was engaging in illicit behavior. And finally, the Justice Department acted upon it by asking the Canadians to stop the CFO. So now she's under house arrest. But it's it's a mistake for our listeners to only focus on the judicial process that's going on here. There's also a new American policy about holding Chinese companies, their principles, and those who are affiliated with them accountable, whether because they're engaged in cyber espionage, whether because they're involved in the theft of trade secrets, or in this case, they're involved in the subversion of American sanctions against Iran. So it's not just Trump deciding that we are going to be engaged in some sort of trade war with the Chinese. And our, our next guest, Gal Luft, is a, uh, uh, an expert on this specific policy as it relates to China. But, but back to the policy analysis for a second. This is the Trump administration finding ways to hold the Chinese accountable for all of their different uh, implementations of their economic war strategy and their information war strategy against the United States. I don't think that this actor, the CFO, was expecting to be stopped in a Canadian airport, but she was. And unfortunately, the Chinese response has led to 15 Canadians being arrested and the reimposition of a death sentence against a Canadian drug smuggler in Beijing. That's what happens when a government goes against a government. So now we're in sort of a uh, barter, a trade and barter system for Canadian citizens for this Chinese citizen. But the bottom line is that the Trump administration is holding China accountable in the Middle East. Gao Luft after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM Middle East Forum Talk Radio. We are now on the line with Gal Luft, 
the Middle East Forum fellow uh, who focuses very much on energy policy, but also his main job is as the co-director of the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security, a Washington-based think tank focused on energy security. And he also serves as a senior advisor to the United States Energy Council, a cabinet-level extra-governmental advisory committee. He's also the co-chairman of the Global Forum on Energy Security in Beijing and specializes in strategy, geopolitics, energy security, U.S.-China relations, and cybersecurity. Newsweek magazine has called him a tireless and independent advocate of energy security, and the business magazine Porter called him one of the most recognizable figures in modern energy and security issues. Gal, welcome to the program. Good to be on the show. And thank you for joining us this morning. So our opening segment was focused on China's newfound interest, or not necessarily newfound, but rekindled interest in the Middle East. And to prepare for this interview this morning with you, I had the opportunity to read a fascinating study that you wrote back in 2017 from as part of the Atlantic Council entitled Silk Road 2.0, U.S. Strategy Toward China's Belt and Road Initiative. We're about I'd say a year and a half, two years since you published that study, and I was hoping that you might be able to start off by giving us your uh, analysis on, after the start of the new year, it's 2019 right now, what's China's plans for the Middle East for the coming year? Well, China's main interest in the Middle East is energy. Um, it is uh, now the number one oil importer. Uh, so obviously it needs um, oil and gas. Um, China has, in, uh, over the past few years, had a tremendous uh, effort to um, reduce pollution. And this effort is uh, a great success, uh, partly because of the shift to natural gas. You know, it used to use a lot of coal and now much less uh, transforming into natural gas. Uh, but this dependency on natural gas uh, and of course, oil um, lends itself to um, geopolitical dependency on the Middle East, and uh, therefore it seeks to see the region uh, um, becoming more stable. Um, Middle East is also the connecting uh, joint between um, the Asia and, and, and Europe, and therefore uh, it has uh, is very relevant to this Belt and Road Initiative or the New Silk Road Initiative. And of course, uh, if you are to succeed in connecting uh, Asia and Europe with uh, this vast network of uh, infrastructures, you need the Middle East to be stable. So China is obviously very, very interested in seeing uh, more stability in the region. And in many respects, it's actually much more dependent on the Middle East than the United States. Right. And, and because of that dependency, they've been able to set up some very Chinese, uh, Middle East-specific structures. I look at the Renmibi uh, Wan Exchange that's in Qatar right now that they've been able to set up. There's the discussions yeah. of creating a uh, a new pipeline between Iranian energy fields all the way through um, uh, that country up through Mashhad to the Chinese border. There is their development aid that they're offering to certain North African countries in terms of being able to, to exploit resources that are there. Algeria comes to mind. And even beyond that, they've started engaging with non-Arab, non-Persian Middle Eastern countries 
by licensing the entire uh, port of Haifa in, in, in Israel and being able to manage that, building a, a new tunnel system, and even talking about building a railroad from the south of Israel in a city called Eilat to Ashdod, a, a city that's on the Mediterranean Sea. So the, the Chinese interest here, it's not just one of stability and, and trying to, to, to you know, meet their energy needs and to be able to secure their energy future by tapping into the great resources that the Middle East has to offer. But at the same time, they have to be able to have a certain amount of geopolitical certainty with who they're dealing with. So what does that portend in terms of when there is a, uh, let's say, an American or, or, or a Russian uh, interest that the Chinese kinetically or, or not kinetically, but directly have to come up against? For instance, Iran sanctions. Uh, what's the thought process and the decision making process in Beijing as it relates to being able to balance stability with the competing, and in this case, sometimes American national security interests? Well, um, America has its own uh, security interest, and China has uh, different priorities. Uh, it is only natural that China does not see eye to eye with uh, America's priorities, and that's okay. You know, um, they they are entitled to have their own uh, view of what is more important and what is less. Just like we don't always uh, um, conform with what they view as their own uh, strategic or security interest. Uh, um, so, so I think that's, that's uh, the nature of uh, international relations that uh, every country defines its own uh, security interest. Obviously, um, China is becoming a, a great power, and as such, it uh, is no longer playing by the old rules. And that's, I think, something that the United States needs to also learn uh, to accept that uh, the times have changed. China is no longer a secondary power, and it is redefining its role in the world. Uh, sometimes it would come at the expense of uh, American interest. And uh, America wants to be everywhere um, and defines everything as a vital interest. But, uh, you know, uh, you have to make some room for uh, 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 emerging powers. Otherwise, uh, it's a recipe for, for, uh, for conflict. Um, China also has uh, tremendous um, surpluses when it comes to um, infrastructure building. Uh, it has huge state-owned enterprises that uh, in the fields of construction, engineering, and uh, uh, those uh, capacities were used over the years to build China itself. But now when China is more or less already a developed country, uh, almost, um, uh, those capacities need to be exported. Um, and the most natural places to go are the places where there is great need in infrastructure, like Africa, Middle East, uh, uh, Southeast Asia, Etc. And and that's why we see China going into all these places that you refer to, because simply they have those capacities that they need to keep employing. Uh, that's what they know how to do. They know how to build, and and they are building, and and they come with very attractive financial packages. Uh, so those countries that need those uh, loans and projects are very happy to be on the receiving end of it. Um, not always it's successful. Sometimes there are problems and. I'm sure that listeners have heard about different challenges, but but overall, I think that uh, my take is that it's not necessarily that bad for the United States uh, because the United States is not in the business of building anything overseas, and the Chinese are building, and they like to build, and they want to build more. But then the question is, do we want those regions to be economically developed, or we want them to be um, impoverished forever? And unless the United States can come up with 
um, competing capabilities, um, it's only natural that those countries would want to, to uh, enjoy the de- development um, budget. Right. And But the, the thing is here is I think that you um, said earlier that the Chinese are expanding their economy and it's in the interest of the United States to allow maybe a certain amount of responsible growth to be able to provide development aid to countries that are right now in the third world but are benefiting from Chinese largest, whether it be financial aid, development aid. I remember back um, about 10 years ago, I was in Khabarone in Botswana. And uh, we were there ostensibly for a a university trip. There was a delegation between the Ministry of Youth and and, and Economy that was down there, and and we were visiting from Israel. And the first thing that happens when we land is we see this brand new airport with air scene uh, all over it. And the Chinese had literally rebuilt uh, an airport that at one time had been a dirt field in Khabarov the capital of Botswana, and then when you get off the plane and you go onto the tarmac, everything is branded with Chinese companies, uh, new developments, and, and one of the reasons why is because the Chinese see that uh, area of Botswana as one of the main suppliers of gold that they use for semiconductors. So uh, you see the impact of China on the ground. But then when we get a little bit closer back to the Middle East, and you have to start thinking about America's competing interests with China, how much room is enough room to allow China to grow? I mean, on the uh, uh, the need for China's economy to be able to expand to a certain amount, which allows it to have that uh, growth in, in its GDP every year that allows the, the economy to keep on expanding, you have a political order that's being built up right now. I would even argue that there's a new uh, Persian-Turkish-Sino expansion that's going on, where the Iranians and the Turks are starting to put their uh, future in bed with the Chinese, and that's to the detriment of America insofar as uh, a more prosperous Iran uh, does not necessarily benefit the Iranian people. It benefits the Mullahs in power. And a more prosperous Turkey doesn't necessarily benefit the Turks. It benefits Erdogan and his thugs. So at what point does the U.S. have to say enough China, we 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 ex- we we expect and 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 uh, respect your right to grow and to have more economic uh, uh, influence over these countries, but not to the point that it's detrimental to America's security interests in the region. Wh- where do we find that balance between allowing responsible growth and mitigating the after effects of that, which is detrimental to American security interests? I think that your question implies that um, uh, China is asking U.S. permission to grow or that the U.S. is in a position to determine who grows and when. That's not how things work in this world in the 21st century. Maybe uh, in the more uh, in different uh, times it did, but uh, not anymore. Uh, and we see that uh, gone are the days that uh, the world was standing uh, and waiting for America to whistle or to they jump and people say, oh, hi, it's no longer the case. And, you know, I'm talking to you from Haifa, overlooking the port of Haifa that you mentioned yourself. And, you know, Haifa wanted to uh, extend its port and it opened uh, the the project to a public tender. Um, Not one American company, not one European company applied. So China won the bid. Now, what do you want Israel to do? Not to expand or, you know, that's how it works. Israel took the Chinese company, not because... Uh, it's crazy about China, but because that was the only company that was willing to do the job. And now, after the, sign, the contract was signed, 
uh, the United States comes and says, well, we don't like the fact that the Chinese company is, is operating the port. By the way, Chinese companies operate the, the biggest container port in, 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 in Long Beach, in California, and, and uh, you know, I don't see that there is any problem there. But, 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 you know, countries need to grow. And the only thing I'm saying is, you know, if the United States wants to counter China, that's okay. But it cannot counter China with words. It needs to counter China with, with a toolkit, with a, with a toolbox that allows this competition to take place. And, and, and I don't see it happening. As I said, um, American companies, American construction companies are nowhere to be seen in those areas, probably also in Botswana. Uh, so unless we develop those capabilities and provide answers, meaningful answers, not just rhetorical answers, uh, that's how it's going to be, because the world needs to grow. And that's the natural course of things. And if we uh, will not fill the vacuum, uh, then China will, will do it for us. Well, I, I don't think that the um, you know uh, analysis that you just gave right now, based on the supposition that I'd like to see the world order exist the way it was, let's say, 100 years ago, is one that's fair insofar as I agree with you on the premise that America has not done enough to rebut Chinese expansionist tendencies. But I think that the underlying reason why I make that argument is because the way in which the world economy developed after World War II, and even just you know based on this Westphalian idea that there must be an international rules-based, liberal economic-based order, is one that was abandoned because of this desire for growth over what I would think would be the traditional American anchor of the way in which the world works. And I don't think that China needs American permission to expand. But I do think that there has to be certain rules and certain highways and certain byways that must be respected in order to ensure that we don't go from a system which is based on the liberal economic order to one which becomes a mercantilist system, where China expands and grows regardless of what happens with the after effects of strengthening Iran or strengthening Turkey, or even so far as allowing China to be able to gain a unipolar system over the landmass that is Asia. And and I think you're right. America has not done enough. But when it does wake up, and I think that in one way or another, under the Trump administration, we find that the way that Trump is engaging with China may not be palatable to the global economy, but at least the U.S. is starting to do something. And when it's a policy that is able to evolve and is able to start providing a, I don't want to call it a new Marshall Plan for Africa or a Marshall Plan for the Middle East, just like what happened in the wake of uh, the aftermath of World War II. But finally, the Chinese are starting to feel a little bit of, not aggression, but their growth is slowing because America is starting to ask them, you must accommodate our security needs or you must accommodate our allies' economic needs. And the Israelis, insofar as they were accepting the Chinese uh, contractor taking over the Haifa port, just because it was a matter of elimination, while the Americans didn't bid, the Europeans didn't bid, we must take the Chinese to manage that. I think that's kind of a cop-out of an excuse of not looking harder for a contractor that would have allowed them to meet their security needs insofar as America would like to continue docking the Sixth Fleet in uh, Haifa. And moving beyond that, you bring up the example of Long Beach. It's because the Chinese have to accommodate American security needs in the United States. Now, I don't think that the same exception could be made in Israel. And, uh, you know, but I think, you know, but both of I, we spent a significant amount of time in Israel. I was there for about 
about 10 years from 2005 to 2015. I'm sure that you're up there on Har Carmel, Mount Carmel, looking over the the uh, the, uh, the Mediterranean Ocean there between Akko and Haifa. But as far as we look at the horizon, China sees farther. America has been short-sighted in its approach. And I think that this is a, a clarion call for America and those that are part of the Western economic order to wake up. Not to China being a threat, but to see them maybe more as a partner. And at the same time, the Chinese can't see their ever-growing expansionist tendencies at the expense of other countries. So this isn't about uh, delimiting China's ability to grow. It's about having responsible growth and having the Americans wake up to ensure that they act as a check on China so they grow together rather than having it be at the expense of one's interests or the others. My, I, I agree with this. Uh, my only point that uh, I want to make here that uh, waking up is about uh, resources and, and real action. It's not about talking and not about disrupting. If you think that, that we can stop China through disruption, that's not how you stop China. You stop China by creating um, international alliances and creating mechanisms and financing and development arms uh, that can offer the world what the world needs right now. Okay, and most of the world, what it needs right now is infrastructure. It needs uh, financing. It needs uh, the, the need for infrastructure in the world today, in the developing world, is tremendous. Without infrastructure, you cannot. I mean, half the world, uh, two, one third of the world today, still is not connected to to electricity. You know, it's, it's more than two billion people, 21st century. So unless you offer this. Uh, and unless you begin to tune in to the needs of those parts of the world, uh, uh, the vacuum will be filled, whether we like it or not, uh, with um, the, the means and the, the capabilities of a country that may not be, um, uh, uh, doesn't uh, have the same idea about the, how the world should look like. But uh, we, the, 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 we have to really understand that money talks. And, you know, China's diplomacy also is following. Look, uh, we have a president in the White House, two years, hasn't set foot in Africa even once. Uh, look how many times Xi Jinping has been to Africa. Look how many times the Chinese premier and, and, and all the vice premiers. Uh, almost every other month there is uh, some senior official visiting Africa. So I'm just giving it as, as an example. You're, you're right. America's yep. actions are way behind the Chinese. I mean, I, if I could find an example of American incompetence as it relates to financing and infrastructure vis-a-vis a relationship with China, it would be the American failure to join the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. I mean, here you had an opportunity for the U.S. to get in on a new international program where it could have acted as a check against Chinese expansion. It could have had some skin in the game as it related to some infrastructure funding in these third world countries, like those two billion people you spoke about who didn't have a connection to reliable electricity. And it said, you know what? We don't like the governance standards. We don't want to be part of this. So it put its head in the stand. And at the same time, China is now leading this major infrastructure initiative and financing mechanism across the rest of that continent. Um now, to be constructive, I just want to go back to the Middle East because sure, sure. We have, because we do have an opportunity here, and I want to make this point. It's very important because I think that we are now at a point in the Middle East that in the next one or two or three years, I believe, uh, we will begin to see uh, the, the, the countries like uh, Syria, Libya, Yemen, um, 
uh, Iraq, um, re-emerging from their civil wars. And at that point, there will be a tremendous need for post-war reconstruction of, of those countries. Um, those countries will have to be rebuilt. It, it's almost like the Marshall Plan all over again, but in the Middle East. And that will be the test of the United States, because somebody will have to build and build quickly. I'm talking roads, bridges, power plants, ports, airports, everything. You're not going to be able to tell the Libyans, wait a second, let's do it in 10, instead of uh, uh, two years, we do it in five years or 10 years, or we'll do all these studies or environmental uh, uh, surveys, etc. They will need the infrastructure to come up very quickly. And this will be our opportunity to, to show up and to um, uh, play. And if we miss this opportunity, the, you can bet your life that the Chinese will come in and they know how to build, they know how to build well, and they know how to build fast. And that will be a huge loss for the United States. So I'm looking forward and I'm saying, let's look at the next challenge. And it's coming up, depending on your uh, assessment of what's happening in Syria or Libya or all these places. But, you know, wars, every war comes to an end at some point. And, and, and I don't see that Washington is ready for this challenge. I don't see anybody talking about a Marshall Plan for the Middle East. I don't see anybody preparing the tools and the budgets and the money to, to embark on something like this. And the political alliances with other countries. Uh, so I think that's where should should be the focus now on who is going to build those countries um, because that's going to happen that's right around the corner from us. Dr. Galuft, I hope that America meets your challenge. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. After these messages, Joseph Humeyer. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. 
Our next guest is a repeat uh, 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 visitor to this program, the executive director of the Center for a Secure and Free Society, a former American military intelligence NCO, and an all-around expert as it relates at the intersection of the Middle East and South America, Mr. Joseph Humeyer. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Greg. No, it's a pleasure to be on, and um, glad to share any insights. So, Joseph, I would be remiss if we didn't dive right into the news of the day. Maduro is teetering on the brink of collapse in Venezuela, and he's relying on his Cuban, Hezbollah, and Iranian friends to help back up his regime with the Russians coming down the pike and also not threatening military action. But um, I think what we see on the streets of Caracas right now is a repeat of what we saw on the streets of Tehran 10 years ago in June of 2009 when there was an uprising against Ahmadinejad back there in Iran. What is Maduro doing in Venezuela and how has he repeating the tactics that his Middle Eastern allies used in their repressive techniques over the past decade? Well, that's a, that's a big question. You're right. And it is the news of the day or the topic of the day here in Washington and I think actually throughout Latin America. Uh, let, let me address three points uh, related to, to the question. Uh, the first is just a very tactical point, what it has to do with the repression of the Maduro regime on the protests and on the demonstrators that are in Venezuela, which is you're 100% right. It is a carbon copy of the repression that was done by the Iranian regime back in 2009 in the Green Revolution uh, when they repressed those those mobilizations. And, and matter of fact, that's not a coincidence. That's a direct uh, training that was provided to the Venezuelan government by the Iranian besieged. Uh, the former commander of the besieged, uh, General Mohammed Reza Nafti, who's now in Syria, uh, he was the individual that orchestrated and designed this foreign terrorist. Just, uh, jo- just Joseph, to inform our listeners, the besiege is the Iranian paramilitary forces, the irregular paramilitary forces that are responsible for crowd repression, riot control, and, and keeping the uh, tentacles of the regime on the control of the local population throughout Iran. Sorry about that. No, no, you're absolutely correct, and that it kind of dispels the myth that the Iranian besiege only works in Iran. I mean, we know that already because they're in Syria, but, I mean, no one would believe they're in Venezuela, but they are. They were there since 2007, and they provided this assistance. But it complements also what the Cubans have provided. The Cubans have that same kind of capabilities, and also the Russians have a similar capability. So the regime of Nicolas Maduro is fortified. It's been hardened in case of any military uprising against them, because that's what they're really preventing that the demonstrators in the protests are are soft targets those, those aren't that hard to, to quell but the if the military the armed forces of venezuela takes uh, a, a leap forward and, and starts to act in backing the constitutional president of venezuela which is uh, a gentleman named juan guaido uh that confrontation will be met with iranian russian cuban resistance so that's that's one point uh the second point i want to make is that you know, a lot of people in um, Washington, are, they're, they're really looking internally to Venezuela to think that their solution to Venezuela is going to come from some element internal, whether it's the people, whether it's the military, but something's going to rise up against the Maduro regime. And I think that's a faulty calculus. I don't think there's anything in Venezuela that could really turn the tide because I think that, they, like I've mentioned, they've hardened the regime, the revolution's pretty much entrenched, and, and you know, there's no, there's no show of force that's capable of, uh, of using an asymmetric weapon against the regime. I think really we have to be clear on who we're fighting in Venezuela. Now, this is very identical to Syria. You know, we're not just fighting the Bashar al-Assad government in Syria, and we're not just fighting the Maduro government in Venezuela. We're fighting Iran, Russia, Turkey, uh, China, uh, um, um, and Cuba, and what they call themselves is the multipolar force. They, they've given a name to their alliance, 
And so that, uh, that, that, that conflict, which is fundamentally an asymmetric conflict, it's not a conventional one. We're not going to beat them with military forces, but it doesn't just extend into Venezuela. It goes all throughout Latin America. And it's something that I know we've talked about personally quite a bit, that this multipolar force has entrenched themselves in Bolivia, in Nicaragua, obviously in Cuba, and they're looking to expand. So what we do in Venezuela is going to be very important uh, to how we neutralize the extra-regional presence in Latin America, and, and which is naturally linked to the extra-regional presence in the Middle East. So you just gave a lecture about two weeks ago in Asuncion in Paraguay as part yeah. of the uh, conference that I think was taking place on trans-regional threat networks. It was hosted by the Parliamentary Intelligence Security Theor- Forum, and uh, you were looking at financing. But with Venezuela being the microcosm of what could happen in case there was any extraterritorial influence from Iran, from Russia, from these Middle Eastern actors, how is the rest of Latin America looking at the Middle Eastern influence in Venezuela? I mean, do you have the Bolivians waking up to this issue? Do you have the Chileans that are you know, engaging in a terror trial right now after the uh, attempted attack in Santiago? Do you have in, in Peru um, uh, with the Lima trial that you were involved with? I mean, are other individual countries and their governments looking to how the U.S. is responding against that Middle Eastern threat that's influencing the situation in Caracas, or are they taking a wait-and-hold approach to say, all right, we'll see how the U.S. acts there, and then maybe we'll start cleaning up our own backyard after they take care of Maduro? Okay, so there. So I just came back from a whirlwind tour of South America, particularly but I was in Central America as well. Uh, as you mentioned, I was in Paraguay, I was in Brazil, I was in Colombia, and then I was most recently in Salvador. But uh, I could tell you there's some good news, and then there's some not-so-good news. Uh, the good news is that... Uh, I think all these countries are waking up to what Hezbollah is. Uh, now, they're looking at it mostly from an angle of transnational organized crime, because Hezbollah is a huge uh, money launderer and pretty much tied to almost every drug cartel in Latin America. And they are laundering massive sums of money, now, not just through the, the Hezbollah proper, like Hezbollah, but through these Lebanese businesses and Lebanese communities that are you know, historic in Latin America. And some of them actually don't even know they're doing it for Hezbollah, but they're nonetheless doing it. Uh, for Hezbollah at the end of the day. So the illicit finance side is something that uh, I think the region is waking up to. Uh, the conference in Paraguay that you mentioned, uh, the former assistant, uh, well, actually the current uh, assistant secretary for terror finance and treasury, Marshall Blingley, was down there, and he, and he provided his uh, input and insight into the threat streams. But So that's the good news. The good news is I think they're all waking up to Hezbollah on the illicit finance side, on the organized crime side. The, the not-so-good news is I don't fully think that they all realize that Hezbollah is also a terrorist organization. And more importantly, Hezbollah is the number one first line of defense of Iran. Uh, uh, you know, it sounds maybe a little basic for, for some of the folks that study the Middle East, but in Latin America, the Hezbollah-Iranian connection isn't 100% solidified in the, in the eyes of the governments. And I think there was a lot of work to be done there. And, and one of the things that I've been trying to help these governments understand is beyond the fact that Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. I think that's you know something that we've been working on for years. But that Hezbollah works much like with Iran and their intelligence services to provide surrogate operations and that they infiltrate. Uh, they infiltrate society. They infiltrate governments. They infiltrate businesses. Uh, and they do all the same work that they've done in the Middle East. They do that in Latin America. The only difference is most of these countries, well, all these countries are non-Islamic. So they don't use an Islamic approach to doing this, but they use an anti-imperialist approach. They'll uh, find uh, Latin America leftist movements, that they think, social movements that they think are sympathetic, and they embed themselves with these groups, and then they use those groups to 
uh, sway the governments. And I think that's something that the Latin American governments are starting to listen to, but I don't think they're quite there as far as connecting all those dots. So, I mean, we, we've had this political evolution in Latin America, let's say in the last two years. The latest is the election of Jair Bolsonaro, the new president of Brazil, where it's not just the governments and the bureaucracies that have to start waking up and realizing that this is not just a transnational criminal threat, but this is, is actually, like you said, you know, Hezbollah and, and different proxy groups that are either acting on behalf of Iran. There's also Sunni groups that are involved. There's some Salafist organizations yeah. that are down there. So, so the governments that are now being put into power have an opportunity to have a paradigmatic shift in the way in which they deal with Middle Eastern influenced or originated malign behavior on the South American continent. So can you walk us through uh, someone like Bolsonaro, who was newly elected, he's had a, uh, a shift in the way that Brazil has looked at their relations with some Middle Eastern countries and also his commitment to uh, have a, a more heavy handed approach in fighting against crime, but also against terrorism. We also see in the non counter terror related space, he's um, acknowledged he liked to move the embassy, the Brazilian embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and Israel. Yeah. He's uh, gotten closer to America in terms of security cooperation there. Using Bolsonaro as an example, who are the politicians that we have to be looking out for that are starting to take this threat more seriously? So, the, uh, you know, I was in Brazil. I got to speak with um, many members of the national security team of uh, President Bolsonaro, particularly his armed forces. And I can tell you that that, that is a huge pivotal shift in South America in terms of having a solid counterterrorism uh, partner, a solid counter-transnational organized crime partner, and just frankly someone that has the political will to make the hard decisions to align Brazil in the in the orbit of democratic, you know, free market, uh, freedom-loving countries that are trying to fight these uh, subversive forces globally. Uh, and I think President Bolsonaro is up to the task. Now, he just started. I mean, he literally was inaugurated in the beginning of January, so his, his government's forming, and he's going to have a lot of internal battles within. There's all this propaganda that's going to be smeared on him that already is being smeared on him. Uh, but I think he, we have to not lose sight that, I mean, we, you, don't, you don't always get these opportunities where the, you know, the political winds shift towards your favor. Probably not, probably nothing that we did, the U.S. did, or, or anyone really. It's just the way things uh, manifested themselves in, in Brazil, and we have to capitalize on those opportunities. So speaking with this team, I can tell you they're, they're very optimistic about how, how, how much they want to get accomplished, about their prudency, actually. They're not reckless. It's, uh, some of the media try to portray them. They're, they're studying. They're engaging. They're 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 trying to understand the nuances of all these uh, orbits: the counterterrorism problem, the, or, the organized crime problem, uh, you know, Venezuela, and, and and they're looking at they're seeking advice from from which one of the reasons I was down that they're seeking advice from people that have studied this for a long time. In that, I think they're 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 increasingly knowledgeable about the Middle East. Uh, they 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 have a good understanding of the history that's happened in Brazil with the ties to Iran the ties to Hezbollah, but also the ties to Sunni groups. Al-Qaeda had once had an, uh, an operational presence in, in Brazil. Um, and I think right now the big the big player that everyone's trying to understand is Turkey. Uh, Turkey uh, is taking a leading role now in Venezuela. Uh, they're taking a leading role in Bolivia, uh, Paraguay, and all countries that border Brazil. Uh, they haven't yet pronounced themselves in Brazil, but Turkey, Erdogan is essentially trying to present himself in Latin America as a peacemaker and mediator for the conflicts that exist in the region, particularly in Venezuela. But for those that study the Middle East, we know that 
Erdogan is not a peacemaker and he's anything, he's a trouble starter and his alliances with Iran and Qatar are, are, are potentially nefarious and dangerous for what they're going to be able to project in the region. So I think uh, that's uh, one that I was asked particularly a lot about uh, in my visit to Brazil. Another political evolution or, or revolution that's taken place that I would not have suspected is that after the election of two Islamists to the U.S. Congress back in November, Rashida Tlaib and Alhan Omar, we now see that Maduro has a backbench supporting his regime in the U.S. House of Representatives. Yeah, that's true. I mean, <laughs> you, you yeah. have a, uh, 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 the guise of an anti-war advocate in Omar and uh, a non-interventionist in Tlaib. Hugo Chavez started this a long time ago. I mean, back in, if you go back about a decade or more, I mean, 2004, for instance, when Hugo Chavez visited New York, uh, you know, he used to be very close to the Kennedys, uh, and he used to use the Kennedy, like one of the Kennedy brothers uh, established a cooperation agreement with Sitco to promote the Hugo Chavez all throughout the neighborhoods in the Bronx. And so uh, it, this is kind of a, a reliving of what Hugo Chavez was doing a, a long time ago, which he, he actually you know hired a bunch of U.S. lobbying firms to portray his image in the United States and get himself into the media and things like that. And so uh, we're seeing that a little bit. It's not so much direct as it was back then, but you're right. It's 100% people in the U.S. Congress and in other elements that are spreading kind of nonsense on Venezuela. Like people are calling it a coup, that a U.S. orchestrated coup against Maduro, which is, I mean, when you have a country that's, you know, 50% of its economy is plundered, you know, 90% of its population is in poverty, uh, one of the highest uh, homicide rates in the world, I mean, who are you talking about a coup? You know, this is just nonsense. And you're hearing that being parroted from very un- either uninformed or people that are, you know, spreading propaganda. And, you see, and unfortunately, you do see that here in Washington on the Hill, and that's, uh, that's, I think that's a, a playback from what something the Venezuelans have been doing for, uh, way back when Hugo Chavez first started. So this is, this is the exact quote that you're talking about from Omar on Twitter, and I, I'd like to get your reaction. Uh, she tweets out two days ago, A U.S.-backed coup in Venezuela is not a solution to the dire issues they face. Trump's efforts to install a far-right opposition will only incite violence and further destabilize the region. We must support Mexico, Uruguay, and the Vatican's efforts to facilitate a peaceful dialogue. Now, this is really, really grand coming from her, especially on the fact that she is calling for uh, no sanctions, uh, no U.S. pressure on Venezuela, right in our backyard, directly rebutting the Monroe Doctrine, which she has uh, denounced. But at the same time, she's saying, hey, we may uh, uh, not need to sanction Venezuela, but we definitely should boycott and divest and sanction uh, our closest Israel. ally in the Middle East, Israel. Yeah. So th- this uh, moral inferiority complex that she's putting forward as it relates to uh, an enemy of the United States and engaging with them and a friend of the United States and, and rejecting them and distancing us from them, I mean, this is is really the next iteration of what I think is is a alignment where we've seen it in Venezuela, right? We, we have the Iranians and the Cubans and Hezbollah working with the Venezuelan government. We've, we've spoken about Tarek al-Assami on this program before, uh, someone who, who is uh, there at the top of the Maduro regime. But now we have the same 
alliance, right? The same model of Islamists working with uh, uh, far leftists starting to replicate itself here in the U.S. Congress. So this is indicative to me, Joseph, that this is not just a regional focused alliance of of the Turks trying to make trouble in South America, of Iran starting to prop up the Maduro regime, but that same alliance is starting to replicate itself here in our own backyard. So maybe one of the things that you can help our listeners understand is what are the the uh, tendencies for these seemingly ideologically split actors, Islamists and leftists working together, uh, focusing on trying to support illiberal regimes in South America. And at the same time, I, I remember Chavez, you're speaking about his um, his actions uh, uh, back when he was still around, back in 2013, 2014, and even before that, he used to use his Jewish community in Caracas as a sort of, uh, of, of an anti-Semitic canard of saying about the, uh, the elements of Israeli power and whatever else. So, so why are these two forces working together, the, uh, the, the leftists and the Islamists, and how can the traditional Westphalian, Western liberal bloc rebut them? Okay, so I'll address the question, but before I do that, I really just want to, you know, react to the, what you asked me to about the tweet that you, you read. And I mean, it's just so filled with non-facts. I mean, facts matter, and you have to get the facts right to be able to give any kind of coherent statement. And to say that they're being replaced by a far-right regime, Juan Guaido is anything from far-right. About he would be classified in the U.S. political spectrum as probably center-left. Uh, to be honest with you, and he's a member of the International Socialist Alliance. So he, he's the farthest thing from like a far-right pers- uh, politician being installed. And then the second part of it is that, you know, th- th- this is a constitutional action. If you read the constitution of Chavez himself, Chavez, his people wrote that constitution. Uh, and Article 233 says that if there is an illegitimate election, then the, national, the next in line in the National Assembly would take power. That's the same thing kind of in our, in our election, right? If we have legitimate, the Speaker of the House at some point would, would take power. And that was Juan Guaido in this instance. So I think the facts matter in understanding before anyone tweets something on that's really just kind of filled with, with, with erroneous statements. But to your question, you know, so the, there's a lot of things that bind Islamism and socialism and things like that. But I think there's two things that, and, and this is kind of portrays how the, the Islamist movements present themselves in the Western Hemisphere, because they don't really always just talk about Islam, because they know that that's not a message that resonates. There aren't huge Islamic communities in, the, in Latin America. Uh, but the two things that bind them is, one is militarism. There is a militant culture in Latin America where there's certain social movements that, are, you know, to taking a lot of uh, militant approaches to trying to change policy, change their governments, uh, destabilize certain parts of the country. And so they, 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 they tell them that, you know, we're in this resistance with you. We're trying to fight the, the, the powers, the great oligarchs, the, the, the controlling forces of, of capitalism. And so they use those messages uh, to really resonate with uh, their specific audiences in the region. And the other is anti-imperialism. Anti-imperialism is, uh, and I think Iran particularly considers itself not just the leader of the Islamist movements, but the leader of the anti-imperialism movements. After the fall of the Berlin Wall in the 90s uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, I know there's letters that the, the Ayatollahs had wrote to the Russians and said, listen, he said, your revolution has waned. It's time to look at the Iranian revolution as the leader of the anti-imperialist movement, a much broader coalition that doesn't just include uh, Islamist actors. And so I think uh, that those messages, which are very powerful, the anti-imperialist message and, and the militant message are very powerful in Latin America. And, and if Iran's able to tap into them, which they have, uh, it, it allows them to grow at a much faster rate uh, where you don't see as much conversions to Islam, but you do see folks uh, organizing and moving on behalf of Iran. I'll give you an example of that. Um, 
So, uh, you know, I'm not linking this to Iran, but the caravan movements in Central America where you see these mass migra- irregular migration that's moving to the border has created so much fuss along uh, uh, Central America, Mexico, and obviously a big part of our border security conversation. You know, those kind of groups that organize that, like one of the groups, one of the NGOs that organized that from Honduras is a group called Pueblos Sin Fronteras, and Spanish for uh, people without borders. And I think one of the things that Iran's paying special attention to is the concept of borderless countries, because they that's a direct challenge to Western sovereignty, to, to the Westphalian concert, concept of sovereignty. And if you can challenge borders, you can challenge the concept of Western democracy. And I think they're looking at those kind of movements that are establishing these narratives to be able to push regional conflicts and destabilization to advance their own interests, which at the end of the day may be Islamic, but, but that, that's not how they present it uh, at the forefront. So this is really pretending to be not just a, uh, a political challenge to our security interests in South America, but there seems to be two separate axes which are starting to fight one another. And, and, and it's right now coming to a head. I mean, the Middle Eastern wars that we have observed over the past 18 years, and if we really want to go all the way back to the revolution, I guess it's the, the Islamic revolution in Iran, it's been now 40 years of this uh, conflict. And if we even go back to 76 when the Ayatollah started cutting his chops in Tehran, uh, 45 years. So they have exported their version of revolutionary action, albeit it be in a, a leftist vein. And now we see the people starting to react to that. I mean, Chavez was in power since when, 98, 97? Yep. Is when yeah, he was many. able to, then there was the coup and then the, the failed coup and whatever else. So uh, I, I think that the way that the West has to be able to respond to this is to take the example of where we had non-intervention in Iran, getting back to the beginning of the interview when we raised the, the Green Revolution, and to put all the levers of American power maybe going up to the point where we're ready to threat, threaten kinetic action against Maduro that um, we have to be able to see what's going on there. Because if we take a 200-year-old policy, if we take the Monroe Doctrine, saying that the United States will not allow for there to be foreign influence in the Western Hemisphere, and we apply that rationale to saying we will not allow there to be Islamist tendencies, we will allow Turkey to come in, Russia, you better get yourself out of Venezuela, and we reassert ourselves, at least there can be a common defense against these disparate uh, uh, multi-factored threats. So I think the challenge here, and this is really extends through Venezuela, the challenge here is in ACM. Joseph, we've warfare, got 30 seconds just to, uh, okay, sorry about I'll that. Be very quick, <laughs> real quick. The, the major lesson is asymmetric warfare as opposed to conventional warfare. The center of gravity is no longer military action. It's public opinion. And we need to work at driving public opinion in Latin America to say, no, we don't want Iran, Russia, China, Turkey in our country. That, that can't be a voice the U.S. says. That has to be the voice the Latin Americans say. And you, you, and, and you heard it first on this program. I urge President Trump to appoint Mr. Humeyer as the special envoy, along with Elliot Abrams, to all of South America to understand Islamism and these uh, malign threats facing not just us here in the United States at home, but the rest of our hemisphere. Joseph, thanks for joining us. This is, this is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM talk radio. Delaney Anchik, thanks for arranging the interviews today. And to all of you, have a great week. We'll be back live from D.C. on February 6th.